Truth without love is cold and cruel. We shouldn't be content with just truth. We should want truth wrapped in love, so to speak. And the local church should be right, but it should also be beautiful. The truthfulness of our testimony should be adorned by the beauty of our life. Our life lived together in community, as we considered last week, and also our life out in the world as witnesses of Jesus. Welcome back to Midweek Musings. I'm Pastor Taylor, and I'm here with my brother and co-laborer in the Lord, Pastor Daniel Ventura. It's good to be with you, brother. It's good to be here with you too, brother. We're discussing today our mission statement as a church, and the third part of it is that we enthusiastically engage in God's work. And in light of that, we considered a passage from the book of Acts. What passage did you preach from this past Sunday? Well, we looked at a few different passages, one from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then also chapter 2, verses 40 to 42 at the end of Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. And then again, we jumped ahead to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And each one kind of speaks to a different aspect of what we're talking about when we say that we exist to engage enthusiastically in God's work. And to summarize, the main point is this, the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus to empower Christians to serve King Jesus as his witnesses in both truth and grace. Or we could say it this way, Jesus sent his spirit to make us his truthful and gracious witnesses throughout the world. And in that way, King Jesus is actually still at work today by the Holy Spirit through his church. That's good. And that that ties in really nicely with what we've been thinking about through our series you know, we think about first how we are called to exalt and experience God. That's our first, you know, part of our mission statement as a church. And then we think about how we equip believers for that task of exalting and worshiping God. And now having that firm foundation, we go out and we share this good news with others. And, and how does all of that tie in to the title of this book, The Acts of the Apostles? It's really fascinating that, you know, we typically consider the book of Acts and its title as the acts of the apostles because that's what we find there we find that it's the story of peter and john and then paul and his missionary journeys but in reality it's more properly titled the acts of jesus by the spirit through his church and where do we get the proof for that well it's in acts chapter 1 verse 1 where luke the author tells us that his first book dealt with all that jesus began to do and teach. By that first book, he's referring back to the gospel according to Luke. That was the first book that tells us all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Now, this second book is about what Jesus continues to do and teach in the world. And we don't always think of this. We don't always pause to actually consider this reality that our Lord Jesus is alive right now. The very same body that he took from the Virgin Mary, that body now is clothed in the glory of his resurrection. That glorious body is currently in the highest realm of glory, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we can think of Jesus passing through into kind of an alternate dimension of glory. And there he is on our behalf as our human representative, our true prophet, our merciful high priest and our righteous king, And Jesus is breathing in celestial air as we speak. His heart is pumping blood throughout his body 
at a steady beat of peace. His eyes are, we can imagine, taking in the light of his father's majesty. Some of that's speculative, but the point is this. We should consider this reality that Jesus is truly alive and reigning right now from glory. He isn't passive doing nothing. He's active and he's continuing to work throughout the world. That's a really good emphasis to think about when we're looking at Acts, especially in the world that we're living in. It comforts us with everything going on today. uh, We know that the reign of Jesus isn't something that's just future, but it's beginning right now, right? And we often think of Jesus in regards to his state of humiliation on earth when he suffered for our sins. But here, as you rightly mentioned, we're thinking about Christ's ministry as the exalted Lord and King. But this brings us to ask the question, how exactly is Jesus working in the world today? Yeah, it's a great question and somewhat difficult to think about at first glance. But when we look back in the Gospels, we see that Jesus promised before he left, before he went to the cross, before he ascended, he promised his disciples he would be with them through the Holy Spirit. And we see that especially in John chapter 16, verse 7, there in the Upper Room Discourse, where he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, referring to the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it is to our advantage that Jesus left and went away in order that he could send from glory the Holy Spirit to be with us throughout the world. The one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, he who is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, in that way, by his Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us to the end of the age. And he continues to do and teach as he empowers by the Spirit ordinary Christians to be his witnesses in the world. You know, it's a shocking statement, as you mentioned from John 16, where Jesus says, it's better if I go. I think if we took a poll of our listeners and asked them, would you rather be living in the time of Jesus, walking and talking with him on the roads of Galilee, or would you rather be living in 2022? I think most of the people listening in would say, I'd rather be walking with Jesus. But Jesus reminds us it's actually to our advantage that we go because the Spirit's going to come and is going to bring about this new ministry. He's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to comfort believers and he's going to communicate the message of Christ through the work of his church. And if Jesus doesn't go, we won't have the comforter with us. I just want to share one quote that I read when I preached actually on this passage back in the day, which says this. It says, just as perfume is more fully present when its fragrance fills the room than when it's in its bottle, so by his ascension, Christ is now accessible to each and all of us. He is no longer confined to the dusty roads of Galilee. I love that imagery. It really captures the idea so well. And yeah, we see that right here in the beginning of the book of Acts in verse 8, which is considered the thesis statement of the entire book of Acts. It kind of structures the whole book itself and all is flowing out of that. We see how the disciples faithfully fulfill the mission that Jesus gives them right here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so he was promising that he would be with them by his Holy Spirit, equipping and empowering them to serve him throughout the world. So Jesus empowers us to be his witnesses, but what kind of witnesses does Jesus have in mind when he empowers us? Yeah, the meaning is tied to bearing witness about a truth, both in words and in actions. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, where Luke, our author, 
tells us that after Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says this, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so right there, Peter is obeying Jesus' command to be his witness with his words, bearing witness about Jesus. It first and foremost speaks of the words that we declare, proclaim, or preach about Jesus. The testimony that we give is not primarily about us or how Jesus has helped us. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for sinners like us in human history through his life, death, and resurrection. We primarily think of the words, the words of a witness testifying in a courtroom. But we also should think about how those words of a witness are only credible if the witness himself is trustworthy. For example, in the courtroom, if the opposing attorney can stand up and present evidence that proves that the witness is a liar and a cheat, well, then that discredits the testimony of the witness and his words are then empty in the courtroom. And so too, as we speak about the gospel to others with our words, we should, as we're told over and over again in the epistles, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We want the truthfulness of our testimony about Jesus to be backed up by the graciousness of our life. And you know, this ties in, Pastor Daniel, to a topic that we've been considering among the elders and deacons, the leadership of our church, the idea of gospel culture. What do we mean by that? Yeah, gospel culture really deals with how the gospel message that's preached uh, informs the kind of culture that we have in a church in such a way that we're walking in step with the gospel. We are not the gospel. The church is not the good news that people look to, but the church should reflect in their witness, as you mentioned, in word and deed, the values in reflecting the very person of Christ to the world. And, you know, a church could effectively undo what it says by how they relate to each other in the church. You know, orthodoxy, we might say, and right doctrine has to go right in step with what we call orthopraxy and and how we live. And these two are equally important in God's sight. You could think of, um, you know, when Paul rebuked Peter in the book of Galatians, because at this point, Peter was not walking in step with the gospel. His conduct was was undoing the message they were trying to preach. In Galatians 2.14, we read, Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What exactly, Pastor Taylor, was going on in this text? Yeah, well, Peter was not walking in step with the reality of the gospel. He was, we can imagine, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he was cutting straight the word of God. He was rightly dividing the word of God, preaching it well, but he was not walking straight according to that gospel reality. And in fact, the word that Paul uses there is related to orthopraxy. It's uh, walking in a straight way in accordance with the gospel. And so how was he not walking in step with the reality of the gospel? Well, the gospel says that faith in Jesus, apart from works of the law, is what justifies sinners, that we are fully forgiven and fully accepted before God as equal members and co-heirs of his kingdom by faith alone in Jesus. But Peter 
and a few others were caught up in this error and were walking astray. They were not accepting uncircumcised Gentiles as equal members of the church. They kind of pushed them away as outcasts. They refused to eat with them until they submitted to the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. Their conduct, in that way we can say, polluted the message of the pure gospel. Their conduct implied that sinners are not forgiven and accepted until they submit to God's Mosaic law. And anyone watching from the world would have concluded based on their conduct, well, I have to submit to and obey God's law in order to first be saved. That salvation is not by grace, but by works of the law. Their conduct gave a different message than what they were saying with their words in the pulpit. And that's what Paul's saying. Their crooked conduct was making the gospel crooked. That's really good. And, you know, as we think about the church today, we can think about how important it is that we don't add to the word of God and we don't add to the message of God uh, things that God's word doesn't say, right? The message of Christ is already comprehensive and even offensive on its own. And when we add to the message of Christ or in our culture, when we show forth a Christianity that is, you know, adding to the standards of Christian living in different ways, it could turn people away even from Christ. We don't want to put those unnecessary barriers before people in Jesus. And, you know, how does this kind of truth and this text, this reality apply in the church today? Yeah, I think in our own tradition and the Reformed tradition in particular, We are strong in orthodoxy, strong in our doctrine, but often we are weak in our orthopraxy and our walk in accordance with that. We don't always emphasize the importance of walking in step with the Spirit and in step with the gospel that we preach. One author, Francis Schaeffer, emphasized over and over again that truth without love is cold and cruel. We shouldn't be content with just truth. We should want truth wrapped in love, so to speak. And he wrote this. He said, the local church or a Christian group should be right, but it should also be beautiful. Our orthopraxy, in that sense, should complement our orthodoxy. The truthfulness of our testimony should be adorned by the beauty of our life. Our life lived together in community as we considered last week, and also our life out in the world as witnesses of Jesus. And that's a good challenge for us even today when we're praying to the Lord to ask him to help us to, you know, to walk in a way that we show people that following the Lord is beautiful and God's ways are beautiful, right? The truth is not only true, but it's beautiful, as you mentioned. And, and do we see that reality of orthodoxy and orthopraxy going hand in hand in the book of Acts? Very much so. We see the apostles and the early disciples not just going out preaching, but we see that as they were equipped and empowered by the Spirit, they, in that unique period of time, were compassionate in healing people of their sicknesses and illnesses, even raising some from the dead. And we see also acts of great mercy and kindness among themselves and radical generosity, selling their possessions in order to provide for one another. We see their willingness as well throughout to suffer, uh, suffer bodily harm, suffer loss of possessions. Why? In order to share the good news of the gospel with other sinners in love for them, that they too might be saved and brought in to what we have with Jesus. And so we see in them a deep fraternal love, this bond amongst themselves as Christians, but we also see in them a deep love for the lost, 
even their enemies. And we see that in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, where we find there the widows were being taken care of by the church in a daily distribution of food, but some at the beginning were being neglected because of some cultural differences, and so they put their heads together, prayed about it, sought the Lord's wisdom, and came up with a solution so that they all would be taken care of by having deacons assigned to distribute those goods to all of those in need among them. And Luke tells us at the end of that section there in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke's there telling us that this is the conclusion. This is the result or the fruit of their love for one another. Yeah, that's interesting. The end of that verse there about the priests becoming obedient to the faith. Uh, why does Luke call our attention to that very specific fact? What is the connection to, to the deacon's work intending to the widows in their midst? Well, when we look back at the Mosaic law, it was the duty of the Levitical priest to receive the tithes and donations of the tribes of Israel and take those and provide them for all the weak and vulnerable among them. And we see that responsibility of the Levitical priest in one passage in particular, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12 to 13. Maybe Pastor Daniel, can you read that passage for us? Yes, that passage says this. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Yeah, so in that passage, we see this practice. It was the custom in Israel that they would give their tithe to the Levites, who would then distribute it to the sojourner, the fatherless, the widows within their towns, that they might eat and be filled, that they would be taken care of. And so... It makes the most sense that the priest became obedient to the truth of the gospel. They accepted the truthfulness of the gospel because they saw the beautiful grace and mercy that it produced. They saw the grace of God at work in the early Christian community, and that helped convince them that their testimony about Jesus was actually true, that God was really with them because it was producing good works they were outdoing them in their own job and duty that they had received from God, and they were impressed by that. Yeah, what implications does this have for us? We are to be on mission in our ordinary life. As I mentioned in the sermon, we are to be faithful in all our duties. God doesn't just want us to go around telling people about Jesus. He tells us to work and build homes and families and raise our children and do all other things for the glory of God. And as we've been talking about, we're to do all of those things faithfully, walking in step with the Spirit, as we pray that the Lord would open up doors of opportunity for us to share the gospel with others by our words. And so our life lived in faithfulness and step with the Spirit should adorn beautifully the truth of the gospel that we share on occasion with our neighbors in the world as God gives us opportunity to do. It's mm, good, brother. And as we begin to continue to wind down here and we think about how this applies to our own particular hearts, you know, how is God's truth as presented by this text renewing and reshaping your heart? Yeah, it corrects me in the sense that Jesus is more than just a therapist, right? Christianity is not just a religious therapy option for me to tag on to my life as kind of the cherry on top. No, I belong to a real king. 
King Jesus, the Son of God, who rules and reigns from glory on high, and he has called me to be his witness in this world, to represent him, to be an ambassador of his truth and grace to the world around us. Yeah, it reminds me that I belong to him and he has a mission for me and he has a mission for all of us. In that way, it is a strong correction, especially when we consider how it corrects the therapeutic deism that exists in so much of American Christianity today. Uh, no, we belong to a real king who rules from heaven and has given us a mission. In addition, it also comforts me greatly that as we've been talking about, he is with me to the end of the age. In this mission, he has promised the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I do not have to go out in my own strength or on my own authority. That would be scary. That would be a dismal task. No, I go forward as a witness of King Jesus who has, as he promised his disciples in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, he has all authority over heaven and earth. And we go under the umbrella of that authority of King Jesus. It's good, brother. In what ways does this text give us a bigger and better understanding of Jesus? We look at the Gospel of John in the beginning there. We see that Jesus, in a sense, is the exegesis of the Father. He is the word that reveals the truth about who God the Father is. He came and he revealed the Father to us, not just in truth, but also in grace the beginning of John's gospel, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus was sent to bear witness about his Father, and he did it full of grace and truth. And Jesus, after he is resurrected and is there with his disciples, he says, As the Father has sent me, so I also now send you. And so he sends us out to bear witness about him, we are to do that, be his witnesses, reveal to the world who Jesus is and what he has done for us, not only full of truth, but full of grace and truth. And so as Christians, we are to walk in step with the gospel by the spirit of God, trusting that Jesus is still at work in the world. Amen. And Jesus is praying for us in that task, right? As you mentioned from John 17, Jesus is praying, Father, as you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And that's a great encouragement to know that Jesus has not only sent forth the spirit to empower us, but he's praying for this mission that we're on. And we often feel weak in it, but we know that the prayers of Jesus will be answered. Right, And so we could have great comfort in that priestly, exalted ministry of Christ as he is helping us to fulfill that mission he's called us to. That's right, Pastor Daniel. You know, This is Jesus' mission at the end of the day. It is the mission of God that he calls us to participate in. And he's praying for us and he will finish the task that he started. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author and finisher of this mission as well. And so we rest in that great comfort that Jesus he will finish the task by his spirit through his church as he declared the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Mm. And so we can go forward in that confidence of his power, his authority, and his promises for us. That's right. I heard it said at a conference once, a missions conference, God doesn't have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. Mm. And that emphasis is helpful to remind us that it's ultimately God's mission. And he has a church that he empowers, prays for, equips, 
for his mission. And because it's his mission, we know it's going to be successful. Amen. And so lastly, brother, which verse do you recommend we commit to memory from this passage? Well, it's that thesis statement there in the opening chapter of the book of Acts, the book about the acts of Jesus by his spirit through the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And indeed, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be his witnesses. And so take that truth in, beloved, receive it, believe it, and walk in that truth. Well, thanks for joining us again for this midweek musings. We hope that you have been blessed and encouraged by these truths that we have considered from God's word. We'll come back again next week to bring you more musings on God's word.